0: It is a privilege to be back again with you, and I look forward to this time with you. I want to say just a word of explanation as to what I'm going to try to do. I'm going to speak on the subject of the authority of the scriptures, and in the evening talks, I want to lay down the fundamental principles that are involved, and during the daytime, the two talks during the daytime, uh, try to give a more or less specific application of those principles, to certain areas of the Bible that are in particular dispute today. And I noticed that I gave this first hour to the first chapter of Genesis, and then this afternoon to the second chapter of Genesis, and tomorrow morning to the third chapter of Genesis. But the more I've been thinking about that, the more I realize it's just about impossible to do anything with the first chapter of Genesis in one hour. We have been at it at seminary now all semester, and I haven't been able to get out of the first chapter of Genesis yet. It is a uh, chapter, of course, that is very much in discussion today. Uh, one thing that everybody can do is raise questions about the first chapter of Genesis. And I would like to say right at the outset that there are, are a great many questions that we simply cannot answer. I sometimes have a guilty feeling when I teach the course in Genesis 1. I feel that I should have been on hand at the time of creation so I would be able to answer some of these questions. But I wasn't there, and I don't know of anybody else that was there. And there are many questions, therefore, that we would like to answer and we simply cannot answer. Uh, There is the whole matter of the relationship between this chapter and what scientists are saying... But I think even more significant today is the question of what the nature of the first chapter of Genesis is. We've all heard the term myth, a term that is used very widely today, and uh, it's very important that we consider the nature of the first chapter of Genesis. And it's that question with which I would like to deal a bit this morning, and then very frankly, if I find that we haven't uh, finished in time, Unless you raise some strong objection, it might be well if we just go ahead with this this afternoon also. Now that will get us out of schedule as far as the lectures are concerned, but I'll try to say something on all of the announced topics. Uh, If that's going to be too confusing, why tell me afterwards and we'll try to avoid it as much as we can. First, just a few preliminary remarks about the book of Genesis. I want to make the obvious remark that the first chapter of Genesis, just as well as everything else in Genesis, is a portion of the Holy Scriptures, and Paul has told us that all Scripture is God-breathed. Now, I think when Paul makes that statement that he has in mind the book of Genesis just as well as any other bit of Scripture, let's remember that as the starter, that The book of Genesis is scripture. We are not simply dealing with some document that has come down from times of antiquity. The Babylonians have such a document, as you all know. Other peoples of antiquity have such documents. We are not simply dealing with a cosmogony of the ancient Hebrews. We are dealing with a book that belongs to the Holy Scripture. And that the statement of the Apostle Paul, all scripture is given by inspiration of God, or all scripture is God-breathed, applies to the book of Genesis just as much as it does to anything else. Now that is going to color my views. I am going to regard Genesis as scripture. I'm adopting a presupposition here. I'm biased, if you will. I'm prejudiced. Now I know those are supposed to be bad words. But you see, we're all that way. All of us have presuppositions, whether we realize it or not. There is no such thing as approaching the Bible or Christianity with a perfectly neutral mind to find out what the truth is. Now I know we deceive ourselves sometimes by thinking we can do that, but we can't. We are either for Christ or we are against him. And we either regard the Bible as the word of God, or we do not regard it as the word of God. And the fundamental question, as I want to try to bring out this evening and in the evening talks, is what our attitude to the scriptures may be. But simply to avoid any misunderstanding at the start, I want to make it very clear where I stand on this point. I do regard Genesis as sacred scripture now when you look at that first chapter of genesis you realize right away that it is unique people are asking what is its literary genre that is what kind of writing is it uh the modern school of form geschichte or form criticism well it's not so modern after all this school of form criticism maintains that every bit of writing in the Old Testament and the New Testament as well must be categorized. There is a certain type to which it belongs, so we are told. And we must endeavor to discover what that type is. Now there are creation stories, cosmogonies, that come from the ancient world. And we must see how Genesis 1 fits in with these. I want to say right away that I think Genesis 1 is sui generis, That is, it is unique. There is no parallel to it. There is nothing like it at all. Genesis 1 stands out. If you would compare it, and we shall make some comparisons, if you would compare it with what the Babylonians have left us concerning the origin of the world, or the Sumerians, or the Egyptians, or anybody else, you will find out that the first chapter of Genesis stands out sort of like a fair flower in a barren wilderness. And that is a question, you see, that every one of us has to face. How do you account for the uniqueness of the book of Genesis, the first chapter of Genesis? What is your explanation? Now, there are explanations that are given, and I'm only going to mention one of them today. A, an explanation that is given by Professor Gerhard von Rod and other German scholars. I'm going to give it in very simple form, and this is what they say. They believe, you see, that not all of the Israelites were in the, in the Egyptian captivity. Not all of the Israelites were in Egypt. But six of the tribes had never been in Egypt. They were in the Kulturlan. They were in Palestine, the Leah tribes, and the Rachel tribes who had been in Egypt united with them later that which united these twelve tribes together was religion it was their God Yahweh as they call him it was the belief in this one particular God and so a loose federation of states was formed somewhat like the Greek Amphictyonic states and the thing that bound these states together was simply this belief in Yahweh now here they were in Palestine and they were subject to influences from without, especially from their Canaanitish neighbors. Now the Canaanites were polytheists, and the Canaanites had a nature worship, and there was great danger that this would be taken over by the Israelites, and the distinctiveness of the Israelites would be destroyed. But there were priests of the Yahweh congregations, to use one of Dr. Von terms, There were priests of these Yahweh congregations who saw to it that polytheistic elements would be rejected in anything that was taken over from the Canaanites. And so, among other things, you have an account of creation. It goes back to Mesopotamia originally and is mediated through the Canaanites. And as it was taken over by these Israelitish groups, as the years passed, the priests more and more purified it. They they cut out from it, excised from it, any polytheistic accretions until finally you have the first chapter of Genesis. That first chapter of Genesis is an amalgam of two basic accounts, what is called a Tatbericht and a Einwortbericht, an account of action, a deed account, and a word account. Now the deed account is, and it was so, and God divided, and the earth brought forth, and so on. The word account is, and God said, let there be light. These two basic accounts were amalgamated with the result that what we have today in the first chapter of Genesis is not at all a revelation of God which was written down by Moses, but rather the so-called priestly document of creation. Now, I realize full well that is a very sketchy account of that view. That is one explanation of the first chapter of Genesis. That explanation does not explain. It is not a satisfactory account of the reason why the Hebrews could come up with something like this. Why is it that the Hebrews could produce so pure a document whereas other people of antiquity far better educated and with greater civilization were unable to do that. These early Hebrews were not much advanced beyond the Bedouins of today who live in Palestine. They were not the people from whom you would expect any great cultural advances at all. Why is it then that they could produce something like the first chapter of Genesis, whereas the Babylonians and the Egyptians and the others could not do that. Whereas even Ovid in the Metamorphoses, which is a highly developed work, could come up with nothing better than the polytheism that characterizes that work. What is the explanation for that? Now, I do not think that these modern German explanations explain anything. They are theories, and that's all that they are. But they really leave us with this question, how do you explain the first chapter of Genesis? And my friends, I think that our best apologetic is an offensive, that we must take the offensive. Now, I don't mean that we must be offensive. It's easy enough for us to do that. And I fear that sometimes we do that in our defense of Christianity. But we have every right to challenge the unbelieving thought of the modern day. And when unbelieving thought comes up with explanations of the phenomena of the Bible, it is our duty to challenge that thought with some of the questions that we can raise. And this surely is an important question how do you explain the uniqueness of this first chapter of Genesis now the chapter begins as you know with a general statement to the effect that God created the heaven and the earth you will notice that the account is told in terms of what we may call fiat and fulfillment by the term fiat I simply mean let it be and so you read throughout the chapter And God said, let there be light. And God said, let there be an expanse. And God said, let the waters be gathered together unto one place. And so on. This fiat is completed by a fulfillment. And the fulfillment is expressed in such terms as, and there was light. And God divided between the waters. And the earth caused to go forth the grass. And so on. And then quite often you find added the statement, and it was so. As though to point out the ease with which God could accomplish these things. The first chapter of Genesis then tells the account of creation in terms of what we may call fiat and fulfillment. And this is really unique. Now, I am well aware that in some Sumerian documents there are statements that seem to suggest a fiat, but there is really nothing that is comparable to what you have in the first chapter of Genesis. And notice this manner of statement for the creation. The fiat, and God said, let there be the fulfillment, and there was, or and, and God did so and so, and then the summing up of it all, and it was so. Now, furthermore, we may notice in this first chapter of Genesis the divine complacency, the divine satisfaction. So often we read, and God saw that it was good. The first of these statements is given with respect to the light, and God saw the light that it was good. And the final statement is made in verse 31. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. The Creator rests satisfied with the creation, not because the creation is something good that exists apart from God, but because the creation was precisely what God wanted it to be. God's will was accomplished, and God rests satisfied in his own handiwork. As the psalmist sums it up, he spake and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. I would ask you also to notice the emphasis that is placed in this first chapter of Genesis upon God. In every verse, God is active. It is God and his monergism that stands before it. God created. God said god saw god divided god called and so on and in the two two occurrences where the word is not used as a subject the phrase in which it occurs is used as a subject the spirit of god was hovering above the waters the phrase there is used as a subject it is god that is active in every one of these occurrences now here I want to avoid a misunderstanding when I say that the first chapter of Genesis presents God as active I do not mean that in the Bardian sense I do not mean this activistic philosophy that has come upon the scene since the time of Immanuel Kant I do not mean that for one moment at all I do not mean activism as over against metaphysics the bible presents god as active but it presents god as active in the beginning god created the emphasis is not on creation alone it is on god just as much as on creation it is god who is metaphysically distinct from us who created that is the biblical emphasis now you know we get all the time an emphasis and a stress today upon the God who acts. Not who God is. We're told that the Hebrews never asked such questions. How on earth does anybody today know what kind of questions the ancient Hebrews asked? But we're told they never asked such questions. They weren't interested in metaphysics. Not who God is but they see God acting. That's the important thing. Now that is a modern view. That's not a biblical view at all. It is God who acts. And I'm stressing the metaphysics here. It is God. God the creator who is acting. But the chapter presents this God as a God who acts. And that's something quite different from the modern Bardian emphasis. And that's what we have in this first chapter of Genesis. Now the creation is told in what we may call paragraphs or strophes, I don't care what language we use, each one described as a day. And there are six of these days in the first chapter of Genesis, and then on the seventh day, mentioned in the second chapter of Genesis, God ceases from his work. Now, in order that we may understand this a little bit more clearly, we must first of all consider the relationship in which the first verse of Genesis stands to the remaining part of the chapter. If you pick up the King James Version, you read the simple declaration, In the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. It is such a simple statement, and yet it is perhaps as profound a statement as ever has been written. But if you will notice certain modern translations of the Bible, you will find that they begin quite differently. You will find that the Revised Standard Version, for example, while translating almost as I did a minute ago, has a footnote which says, or, comma, when God began. And if you read the Westminster Study Edition of the Holy Bible, if I uh, recollect correctly, it begins, when God began to create the heaven and the earth. And if you take the Moffat Bible, it starts out something like this. This is the story of how the heaven and the earth were formed when God began to create the heaven and the earth. In other words, what they do here is make a temporal clause out of the first first verse of Genesis. Now, will you forgive me if I indulge in a bit of grammar for just a moment? If you begin and translate this way, when God began to create the heaven and the earth, parenthesis, now the earth was desolation and waste and darkness was upon the face of the abyss and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters, then God said, let there be light. What you have is a long involved statement consisting of a dependent clause a parenthesis, and a main or independent clause. Now, a dependent clause is simply a clause that requires a further statement to complete its meaning. You and I might say, when I got up this morning, the sun was shining. That's a complete statement. But if you say, when I got up this morning, and then stop, you've left it hanging in the air. That is a dependent clause, a temporal dependent clause. It is dependent, you see, upon a further statement to complete its meaning. When I got up this morning, alone isn't sufficient. You're expecting a statement about some condition existing at the time when you got up. And so if you say, when I got up this morning, the sun was shining, why, you have given a full statement. Now, on the other hand, if you take the statement, the sun was shining, that is a unit complete in itself. It requires nothing further to complete its meaning. So there are those, you see, who would render the first verse of Genesis as a dependent temporal clause when God began to create the heaven and the earth. Now that is not complete. It requires a further statement to complete its meaning, and that further statement is found in verse 3, Then God said, Let there be light. That is an independent statement, and grammatically that is, uh, can stand alone. But not only do we have a dependent statement and an independent statement, in between there is verse 2, which is parenthetical and has to be uh, paraphrased something like this. When God began to create the heaven and the earth, then the earth was without form and void, darkness was upon the face of the abyss, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters, Then God said, let there be light. Now, it might not be out of place to notice what is involved if we translate the Hebrew that way. It's very clear that if that view is correct, and this view goes back to a Jewish exegete of the Middle Ages, if this view is correct, then it denies absolute creation. If you say when God began to create the earth was already present without form and void obviously there is no absolute creation and by that I mean creation out of nothing. If this translation is correct then when God began the work of creation the material which he used was already present. And that is what results from this translation now there was a German scholar by the name of Hermann Gunkel who made the statement that it didn't make any difference how you translated this verse whether you translated it as a temporal clause or as an independent statement but you can see that this makes all the difference in the world if this translation is correct then the first chapter of Genesis does not teach creation. So it's well that we examine to see whether this translation is correct or not. And yet, my friends, there's another question that I think we have to face. There is always the danger that we will mold the Bible to fit our theological statements. I guess all of us face that temptation now and then. We want to make the Bible support what we believe. And in a certain sense, that's very commendable, I think. Let me put it this way. We want to make sure we believe what the Bible teaches. And we don't always go about it the right way. But the Bible is not to be manipulated so that it will support our theological position our theological position must be manipulated so that it will support what the Bible teaches. And that is why a theologian, and every Christian must be a theologian, every Christian must constantly examine his belief to see if what he believes is really what the Bible teaches. That's the way we have to proceed. Now, if the Bible does not teach creation, well, we have to let it go at that. It's not honest exegesis to force the Bible to say what we want it to say. I've simply been pointing out the consequences of what this view involves. But now we must go a little further and ask, what actually does the Bible teach? If the Bible does not teach creation well and good, we'd better abide by that. But let's look and see whether that is the case or not. What about this translation? Is this a correct translation or not? Well, Julius Wellhausen, who could hardly be accused of orthodoxy, made the statement that this translation was verzweifelt. That is a German word which means desperate. In other words, he didn't agree with it. Now, I don't find that Bellhausen and I are usually going hand in hand as far as biblical matters are concerned. But right here I thoroughly agree with him that this is verzweifelt It's a desperate translation. I don't think it's correct at all. It is a grammatically possible translation. Now, we can say that. But you see, because something is grammatically possible doesn't mean that it is necessarily correct. When we study the Bible, we aren't to try to find out what is grammatically possible. Let me take a verse that I heard quoted last night. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. You can break that up and say the fool hath said in his heart, period, and say that simply refers to the fool's meditating. Then you can make a break and say there is no God and take that as an independent statement. That is grammatically possible. And if you do that, you can say that the Bible teaches there is no God and you can say that's grammatically possible. But you're not a very good exegete if you do that. Because our purpose is not to find out how we can arrange things so that they're grammatically possible. Our purpose is to find out what the writer means, and in this case the Holy Spirit, what he is saying here. So that is the thing we have to go after. And when we look at the psalm, it's perfectly obvious that that break that I just gave is wrong. That isn't what the psalmist meant at all. What he meant to say is the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Now, the context shows that's what he's talking about, and we have to consider the context. A man wrote to me once and said, why do you yield to the devil so far as to say that this translation is grammatically possible? And I wrote back something to the effect that I yielded to the devil that far because it it is grammatically possible, and I tried to show that, and then one of those very strange things happened. He wrote back in agreement with me. (coughs) So now I've given that translation everything that I think we can give it let's look at it a bit more closely it is based upon the assumption that the Hebrew demands that translation that is not true now I'm not going to go into a lot of detail here I've written on this in detail and most people don't find that a discussion of Hebrew grammar is a very scintillating matter and uh, so I'm not going to go into the points of grammar here but I'm going to point out one thing and that is that the first words of the Bible have a threefold alliteration. Let me pronounce them So now I've given that translation everything that I think we can give it. Let's look at it a bit more closely. It is based upon the assumption that the Hebrew demands that translation. That is not true. Now I'm not going to go into a lot of detail here. I've written on this in detail and most people don't find that a discussion of Hebrew grammar is a very scintillating matter, and uh, so I'm not going to go into the points of grammar here, but I'm going to point out one thing, and that is that the first two words of the Bible have a threefold alliteration. Let me pronounce them, Brashith Bara. The first word of the Bible begins with letters which roughly correspond to our English B R. A, and the second word of the Bible begins with these same three letters B-R-A Breshit Bara now I think that threefold alliteration is deliberate it ties up these two words by showing that the explanation of the word create is found in the word beginning and the explanation of the word beginning is found in the word create nevertheless the hebrew masoretes have inserted an accent between those two words which means that you must make a pause we call it a disjunctive accent so they would pronounce it pause bara. they did not tie these two words up in the sense that this modern translation does so it is clear then that the words are to be separated And all of the ancient translations of the Bible separate these words and translate as a straightforward statement, in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. Now the real reason that lies in back of this modern translation is this. We are told that the Babylonian creation account begins this way. And let's look at that it starts out when on high the heavens were not named and below the earth had not a name and then it goes on for seven lines then it begins with another temporal clause and on line nine it gives its main clause it begins with two long temporal dependent sentences and concludes on line nine with an independent statement That is the way the Babylonian creation account begins, and inasmuch as it begins that way, we are told that Genesis 1, being a similar cosmogony from the ancient world, must begin the same way. In effect, wherever you have an ancient cosmogony, it begins with a temporal clause, when... That is the real reason, I think, that leads so many men today to say that verse 1 must be construed as a temporal clause. Well, let's look at this just a bit more closely. The Babylonian phrase is translated when, but the actual word is pronounced enuma, and then elish. When on high. Now that first word begins, we may break it down into three parts, en, um, um ma, en is in. Now, personally, I'm inclined to think that our English preposition in is really a derivative ultimately related to the Babylonian word ena or en, which is the same thing. It is used in precisely the same way as our English preposition is. That is, it may be in, refer to in, and it may also have privative or separative force, away from or apart from. Just as when we say immediately, we mean literally away from being immediately. It's the same usage that you find in Babylonian. And so this preposition in, then the second element, um, is the word for day, and the ma is a particle. On the day on high is the way that the Babylonian account begins. On the day on high, the heavens were not named, that is, the heavens had no existence, and below, Shaplish, the earth had no form, and so-and-so. Down through six lines, then a second temporal clause beginning with line seven, and your independent clause on verse on line nine. Now the Hebrew does not begin that way. The Hebrew begins in the beginning. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. I don't want to uh, bore you more with this and go into any greater detail, but if anyone wants to discuss the grammar of these things later, I'll be glad to do it with you. I would simply say that simplicity is the characteristic of Hebrew sentences. Now, I know if there are any Hebrew students here, they'll disagree violently with that statement. (laughs) Nevertheless, that is true. In German, for example, you have long-involved Temporal sentences, do you not? And you wait and wait and wait until the finite verb finally comes. And in Greek, it's pretty much the same way. And in Latin, you know that's the case. And we can do it in English, but not in Hebrew. Now, you can do it in Babylonian, but it is very rare in Hebrew. Simplicity, coordination, is the characteristic of Hebrew sentences. To take that sentence I used earlier we say when i got up this morning the sun was shining hebrew would say i got up this morning and the sun was shining making two coordinate sentences so that this type of thing is very unusual for hebrew and that is why velhausen said it was for trifle it is not a normal hebrew sentence if we take it as it stands then and i'm going to let it go at that We have a grand declaration of the fact of creation. In the beginning, God created. Now the word beginning, of course, is a relative term. The very term beginning must imply a beginning of something. Surely it's a relative term. And because of that, some say it only refers to the beginning of human history that we see unfolded round about us. But the content of brashit is given to us by the word bara, create and vice versa. This is a beginning that is characterized by creation, and this is a creation that is characterized by beginning. Here it means the absolute beginning. Now, it's not only conservative scholars who maintain that, but I think that is the generally accepted view today. Werner Schmidt, who has written a book on the Schirpungsgeschichte, This Priester Codex, that is, the account of creation in the Priestly Code, as he calls it, which is a very radical work, nevertheless interprets this phrase as referring to der absoluta anfang, the absolute beginning. And when I was in Leipzig, I heard Professor Carl Elliger uh, expound this verse in the same way. It refers to the absolute beginning. Just as John, beginning his gospel, takes over this phrase NRK in the beginning and refers it to the absolute beginning. In the beginning God created. And the word for create that is employed here is a word which is used with only God as the subject. Never do we read in the Bible that a man creates. It is God who creates. God has created the heaven and the earth. Furthermore, the word is used of the production of something that is fundamentally new. God created the heavens and the earth. God created the great sea monsters. God created man. And in the latter part of the prophecy of Isaiah, the word is used where God speaks of the creation of a new heaven and a new earth. It is used of the bringing into existence of something that is fundamentally new. Furthermore, If a material is ever employed in the creation, that material is never mentioned. You never read in the Bible, for example, that God created man, dust of the ground. There a different word is used. But the word bara is really more restricted in its force than our English word create. We use the word creation rather broadly. We refer to anything almost as a creation whether it's an automobile or a house or what it may be. And only when we use it in a theological sense do we restrict its meaning to the doctrine of creation. But the Hebrew word bara is more restricted than our English word. It is used, you see, only with these, with these restrictions that I have mentioned. So we are dealing here with the fact of absolute creation. Now what does that mean? Well, possibly we can get at the meaning by showing what it does not mean. It does not mean that God formed a part of himself into the heavens and the earth. The heavens and the earth are not created from an emanation of God or are not an emanation of God. It certainly does not mean that the material of creation was already present. It means simply that God willed the existence of what formerly had no existence. Now, you and I just can't grasp that because we're finite, we're creatures. It's only God that can create. And yet this is, in a certain sense, the basic fundamental doctrine of all Christianity. When men speak about belief in God, What kind of a God are they talking about? Who is their God? The God of the Bible is the God who can create. And it's well that we just meditate upon that for a moment because the thought simply staggers us. We can't do that. If we want to make something we have to have the material. And then what we do really is form it or fashion it into something else. We are craftsmen really. We cannot do what God has done. But Almighty God has simply willed that things come to pass, that they spring into existence, and they spring into existence. And we can only believe that because we trust God. We have faith in Him. We do not know how it is possible. We cannot explain it. There are no analogies that really explain it. But we must believe that. Otherwise, whatever God we believe in is simply a part of the world process. He is part of that process in which we find ourselves and God. And if that is so, he is not a God that can help us. If he is only a little bigger than we are, if he is only a big brother and nothing more than that, if he is only a part of the whole, then we're all in it together, God and you and I. And then there are no standards. There is no absolute. It's every man for himself. And all of these modern philosophies and ideas that are being spread today, new morality, new theology, and so on, all of it is perfectly all right if God is only a part of the world process. If he is, it doesn't matter whether he's dead or whether he's alive. He can't help us. Let us live for the moment. Let us live for our enjoyment. There is no absolute. There is no standard of morality. For all changes, all things flow. All things change. And what may be right today may be wrong tomorrow. And let me somehow get through life the best I can. And what else have you got? The Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible is telling us that God has created all things. And that, my friends, is why there is meaning in life. And that is why there are absolute standards that change not. And that is why it is wrong to tell a lie today and it is always wrong to tell a lie. It is wrong to steal. It is wrong to kill today. It always has been and always will be wrong. For God tells us what is right and what is wrong and that's why there's meaning in life that's why you and I who believe in this God can very well say that our chief reason for existence is to glorify him and to enjoy him forever I threw in a little Presbyterian theology there but I (laughs) I think every Christian agrees with that If this God is the creator, why, we are to live for his glory. He created the heavens and the earth. And notice that phrase. It simply means all things, and in particular the earth. The word heavens here in this first verse of Genesis simply means all things apart from the earth. God created all things, and in particular the earth. Now the little conjunction there singles out this object. Uh, We have an example of this in in the first verse of Isaiah. This is said to be the vision which Isaiah saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. That is concerning Judah and in particular Jerusalem. And so God created the heaven and in particular the earth. If the Bible had been written on Mars, suppose there are people living on Mars, I think it would have said God created the heavens and Mars. But it's and the earth because the Bible is a practical book. And the Bible is dealing with this earth. And from now on, it is going to concern itself with this earth and everything will be judged from the standpoint of this earth. And so the second verse takes it right up. And the earth. That's what we're concerned with. I would say, then, that the first verse of Genesis is a general, comprehensive statement of the fact of creation. That that is not found in the Babylonian account or in any other account of antiquity. It comes to us only in this first chapter of Genesis. Now I want to go very rapidly through some of the remainder of the chapter. We have just a few moments left. (coughs) And uh, say that I believe the detailed account begins with the second verse and that it concludes with the thirty-first verse and that there is a contrast between verse 2 and verse 31, the contrast that we can call chaos and cosmos, that chaos simply refers to the original unformed state of the earth and cosmos, the well-finished universe. Now here I find myself in agreement with Dr. Conrad because he has brought this out rather forcefully in his commentary on Genesis, and I think this is a correct analysis of the form of these verses. But when I say that verse 2 is chaos, I want to guard against misconceptions. When you and I say something is chaos, we mean it's topsy-turvy. It's just all out of order. That is not what I mean. I think Milton may perhaps have influenced this all a great deal here by his paradise lost. But the Greek word chaos simply refers to the original unformed state of the earth. And so here in verse 2, where it says, Now the earth was desolation and waste, and darkness was upon the face of the abyss, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters, then God said, let there be light. That threefold description you see that we have is simply a description of the unformed earth. At that time, man could not have lived upon it. Now, this does not mean at all that it was in any sense evil. This is a threefold description... And grammatically, we are to construe this with the verb in verse 3, God said, let there be light, which simply means that this threefold condition was in existence at the time when God said, let there be light. And I think we have every reason to assume that this is the way the earth came from the hands of the Creator, that this threefold condition had existed from the point of absolute creation until the time when God said, let there be light. How long a time was that? No man knows. Now I'm not going to say anything in particular about the restitution theory which implies that there was a judgment of the original earth that it was ruined and that the remainder of the chapter is account of a recreation. I do not think that can be supported from the scripture at all and I'm going to pass by it because there are other questions that I think that are more important that we should be dealing with. First of all then these statements in verse 2 the earth was desolation and waste darkness was upon the face of the abyss and the spirit of God was hovering over the water (coughs) now Karl Barth says this is not a description of a previous condition of the earth he says if it is such a description then you are faced with a dilemma Either the earth came into this condition because God created it that way, or it came into this condition independently. He says it did not come into this condition because God created it this way, because this is an evil condition. Now, Bart, in his interpretation of this chapter, uh, bases his exegetical remarks, as far as I am able to discern, upon the commentary of another German scholar, Walter Zimmerli. And Bart says, therefore, what are we going to do with this dilemma? Well, there is an easy way out, he says. If we do not interpret the verse as referring to a previous condition of the earth, we no longer are faced with this dilemma. Rather, if we interpret the verse as referring not to a previous condition of the earth, but simply to the previous condition of sin and evil and what the earth would have been had God chosen that part and what the earth may fall back into again, then we no longer have this dilemma. Well, maybe we don't have that dilemma, but we have some other things that are far more serious. What does Bart mean to say here? Well, at this point, he introduces these German words. And I promise I'm going to give up German after a while. We get past the, this chapter. But do we have to face some of these things because this is what people are thinking and saying today. Bart says that this is unhistorische Geschichtsschreibung. Well, that clears it up, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Now, what do we mean by all of that? Well, most languages, except English, have two words for history. I don't know why we don't, but don't anybody start a second one. One's enough for us. The German has Geschichte, and the word simply means history, just as our English word history does. You can say, Eine Geschichte des Deutschen Volks, a history of the German people. And that's perfectly all right. But they have another word which is pronounced various ways depending upon who's pronouncing it. I mean what American scholars pronouncing it. Historie or historia. And Dutch, I think, has those two words, which I won't try to pronounce. And now they are used in modern discussions in quite a different way from the way I've been using them. If I understand the modern theology aright, history is history, in our sense. It is something that took place. That's history. And it is history whether it is important or not. The fact that a building caught fire 3,000 years ago someplace is history. It may not be quite as important as the conquest of Julius Caesar, But it's just as historical. It took place. But Geschichte, according to Bart, if I understand him right, and according to a great many others, is not that which took place upon this earth at all. Geschichte is another kind of history. Now, if you ask Karl Barth positively what he means by this, I don't believe he's ever given us an answer. But I think that we have a way of finding out what, how this word is used. And if this misrepresents him, it is his responsibility to clear this thing up. Modern philosophy and theology maintain that what we know round about us is the phenomena. We learn of it through our senses. But this is not the real thing. This is not the real pulpit. This is wood. I know of it through my senses. But out there in the noumenal realm is the ding on zik, the thing in itself, the real thing. There is where God is. And about that out there we can know nothing. And the realm of Geschichte is that thing out there. That is why, my friends, when neo-Orthodox theology says, I believe in the resurrection of Christ, or I believe in the virgin birth of Christ, I am not impressed. Because they do not believe that the resurrection and the virgin birth were history but geschichte. They are out there. The United Presbyterian Church the United States is about to adopt a confession of faith called the Proposed Confession of 1967. And it involves the substitution of this modern religion for Christianity. Now here is how it does it. And I say this by way of illustration at this point because this is essential that we understand the modern approach to Genesis 1. It speaks of God's reconciling act. Now you and I as Christians believe in God's reconciling act. and You and I know what that was. It was when the Lord Jesus Christ died on the cross of Calvary and he satisfied the justice of God by the shedding of his precious blood. That has reconciled the offended father to his people so that he may justly forgive them of their sins. And we glory in the substitutionary atonement because of what Christ has done. The Bible says plenty about that, does it not? But now this confession tells us that God's reconciling act is a truth hid in the depths of God's love beyond the reach of theory. <clears throat> and that is saying exactly the same thing as if you were to say it is in the noumenal. It is in geschichte. Call it the depths of God's love, if you will, If it is beyond the reach of theory, that means we can't say anything about it. That is the substitution of modern theology for the Christian religion. It is another God for the triune God of the Bible. For you and I can know the triune God, and we can say all about him that he has revealed concerning himself. You and I do know the reconciling act of God, And we can say all about that that God has revealed to us. But here is a great church having a new religion imposed upon it. And the average minister in the church doesn't seem to have the faintest idea of what is taking place. It is a tragedy. But this is what modern theology is. Now, when Barth says this creation account is unhistorische Geschichtsschreibung, it is. An account of Geschichte, first of all, which means that there is no creation in the orthodox Christian sense of the term, and it is being written in an unhistorical fashion. Now Bart says that; those are his own words. I can't understand these people who say that Bart's all right, except he's not quite straight in his doctrine of Scripture. And that's all that evangelicals say about it. That does not even come to the grips with the matter. Bart wouldn't accept that. This is in his Kirchliche Dogmatik, his Church Dogmatics, and it's being translated now. Anybody can read it. This is what he himself says about the doctrine of creation. And you see, he is rejecting the doctrine of creation in order that he may impose a modern philosophical view on the book of Genesis. Now, this is a very serious matter. And my friends, I apologize for going into a thing like this. I realize it may not be the most interesting thing on earth, but we have to come to grips with this now. Because I want to stop now and in our next lecture take up what is based upon this, the interpretation of this first chapter of Genesis as myth. We've had to have some such of of an approach to the subject in order that we can see what it is That is being given to us today. Thank you very much for your patience.